Hey guys, what's up? Welcome to Relatable. My name is Ali Stuckey. Just in case you have never been here before, thank you so much for listening. Uh, if you didn't know, you can also watch this on crtv.com slash And of course, you should definitely subscribe here if you haven't already. So today we're going to talk a little bit about the midterms, which is just like a couple weeks away, which is crazy. I feel like we've been saying for so long, oh, the midterms are far off. Anything could happen. And in this world of crazy American politics, still technically anything could happen, but it's looking like it's going to be an extremely close and perhaps an unpredictable night. So we're going to uh, get into that in just a little bit. But first, I'm going to talk about what I did for the past week or so, because I was a little bit MIA uh, last Friday. No, not this last Friday, but the Friday before I went to L.A., and then to Newport Beach, which I learned for the first time is actually not a part of LA. I didn't realize that. Like here in Dallas, we kind of just include everything as a part of Dallas. Like all of all of the suburbs are a part of Dallas. Um, I guess in California, they don't really do that. I, I was in Newport Beach and I was checking into the hotel. I was like, oh yeah, I'm in LA for work. He was like, oh, you're coming from LA. I thought I was in LA. So I learned that it unfortunately was really bad weather. I was telling the people that I was speaking to, I was at a turning point event that the only reason I like to come to California is because of the weather. The laws are stupid. Some of the people are extremely crazy, but at least you get great weather and you get to do things like go to the beach, which we don't get to do in Texas. Uh, But that was not the case. I had to stay inside my hotel room because the weather was awful. It was like 50 degrees and sunny. But anyway, I got to speak to students at uh, Turning Point USA's Western Regional Conference, I think it was called, and it was really fun. There are just so many excited young Republicans and young conservatives, so much more excited about politics than I was when I was in high school and college. So for all of our hate towards the younger generations like millennials and Generation Z, just know that there's a large group of them out there that really love liberty, that are really involved, that are really active. I talked to more than a few young people, too, who had been red pilled, a.k.a. they kind of converted from progressivism to liberalism. And the conversations that I had with them were so interesting. A lot of them really felt like they were educated, but they were just kind of educated in woke culture. They were educated in their little echo chamber, in their little bubble of progressivism. Because as we've talked about on this podcast, it is cool to be a progressive, especially a young progressive. That's why it's so much so much intellectually easier to be a young liberal than it is to be a young conservative because you don't really have to think for yourself. All you have to do is say, oh, what does Beyonce think? Who is Ariana Grande voting for? Oh, my professors are telling me that communism is awesome and capitalism is bad. Okay, well, most of the mainstream media leans to the left and is saying that Donald Trump is a terrible president. So I guess I'll believe that you really don't have to think to be a progressive at all, whether you're old or young. Now, that's not to say that all progressives don't think that they're just mindlessly following one ideology without actually putting any thought into it. But it is to say that if you are a progressive, there is absolutely no thinking whatsoever required of you. And in fact, it is encouraged not to think at all. It's much more encouraged on the left just to feel, which is another reason why it's so attractive to young people. So I talked to quite a lot of these young people at Turning Point USA uh, who had once completely believed the whole Bernie Sanders shtick, the idea that socialism will be good for America, that free college, free healthcare is exactly what we need. And then somewhere along the way, they were just kind of hit with a ton of red conservative bricks. And they realized, 
wow, this is not going to work. History is actually not working in the favor of my ideology, and maybe I should start researching this and thinking for myself. That's typically what happens once young people start thinking for themselves, thinking independently, getting out of that mindset of identity politics. Like, if I'm a woman, I have to vote this way. If I'm gay, if I'm black, if I'm Asian, I have to vote this way. Once they start thinking for themselves and doing their own research, adopting logic, they typically either, if they don't fully go over to conservatism, they're at least moderate because you see the absurdity of leftism. So I was really encouraged by that, by these so-called conversion stories, not to be sacrilegious, but you know what I mean, these switching over stories. And my hope is that more and more people wake up, especially young people. And I think that they will. So that was the first leg of my journey. I was in LA slash Newport Beach talking to these amazing young people that are much smarter than I was when I was their age. And then I went to Nashville. And in Nashville, I was a part of a town hall type show that was hosted by a company called Aussie. It's going to appear on a PBS at some point. I don't remember the exact day. It was an interesting experience. Uh, the audience was almost entirely liberal. And it was very interesting to hear some of their concerns, some of their perspectives, particularly on things like white privilege, Kavanaugh, Trump. You log on to Twitter every day and you think, okay, these leftists that I see on Twitter, they've got to be a caricature of reality. People on the left aren't really like this. Like they're not this emotional, right? They're not this deranged about Donald Trump. They don't actually, they're not actually this apathetic towards facts, right? wrong. A lot of the people that I've met over the past week, not just there, but also when I went to UC Berkeley, which I'll get to in, in just a minute, made me realize that that real there's a, I don't want to say the majority of the left because I haven't seen the data on this, but a large chunk of the left really just believes every talking point that is fed to them by MSNBC. And sure, there are plenty of people I'm sure on the right that just listen to everything President Trump says and believes it. I'm sure that's absolutely true. But the level of emotionalism and how devoid of facts the arguments are on the left right now when it comes to things like uh, women's rights and feminism and the Me Too movement and Kavanaugh and President Trump and President Trump being apparently against the LGBT community, against women, against all of these minority groups. It's really amazing how they've come to believe these narratives and they don't feel the obligation to attach it to reality. And that's one thing I realized both in this uh, PBS town hall that I was a part of and when I spoke to UC Berkeley. So th that was the third leg of my journey. I lectured in a class for a, about an hour at UC Berkeley. Thankfully, my husband was there. And so he was there for moral support. I just realized that the burden of proof is always on conservatives to, to provide evidence for our arguments, even though history backs our arguments and the validity of our arguments, for example, that capitalism is good, that, free that the free market is good, that small government is better, that individual liberty is something uh, that should be perpetuated because it's led to great advancements in human rights. All of these things have been proven by history and can be attached to reality, whereas much of the progressive argument is grounded in some uh, future utopia that hasn't yet happened yet, but they hope will actually happen, and therefore it's not attached to reality. And yet, for some reason, the burden of proof is always on conservatives to 
to show our work. And uh, the funny thing is, none of our work is ever good enough for the left. It's it's never enough to point to history or to point to facts or to point to logic or even to point to science. Um, we have to. I, I don't I don't even know. Stoop down to their emotional level in order to make an effective argument. And actually, probably not even that, because, see, the left has dehumanized the right so effectively as Nazis, as these racist, awful bigots that they don't have to actually contend with our arguments because they've already dismissed us as immoral people. Therefore, they've already prejudged everything that comes out of our mouths as immoral. So they don't have to listen to us. That is how they um how they monopolize the conversation and how they really dominate the public sphere by saying, we don't need to listen to those Nazis over there. We don't even need to hear their arguments out because, well, they're bad people and we're not. And I saw that very clearly at UC Berkeley. So first, I was very excited for the opportunity to lecture at a class at UC Berkeley. This professor, Dr. Ross, who teaches, I think it's PoliSci 179 at UC Berkeley is awesome. He's not, I don't think he's a conservative. If he is, he's certainly not outspoken about that. I think he went to UC Berkeley himself, maybe was raised in the area. So I'd be really surprised if he is a conservative. Nevertheless, whether he's on the right or the left, he cares about free speech. He cares about the freedom of thought. And he knows that free speech is completely dead outside of his classroom at UC Berkeley. So he does something really cool. He gives conservatives the opportunity to speak in his classroom. I think it's once a semester. So this was my turn. I got to go with uh, the Claire Booth Lewis Policy Institute. That's an awesome organization that you guys should look into, by the way. And I gave my presentation and then there was about a 30-minute Q&A after my presentation. So I have been to Berkeley before. I've obviously heard the stories about Berkeley. I've seen other conservative commentators that are much more famous than I am be shouted down, be protested, really be threatened uh, and felt like they're in danger for simply speaking their opinions and speaking facts about conservatism. And so I knew what I was walking into. However, this professor told me before I actually spoke that most of these kids are actually apolitical. Yes, they probably lean to the left, but they're just apolitical. They don't really care. So I thought that I would be walking into an environment that would be fairly open to what I had to say. Um, And like I said, I was very thankful for the opportunity, but I was shocked Shocked, even though I was at UC Berkeley, I guess because of the pretext that I was given by him that this is an apolitical group, I was still shocked at what they found surprising. And I don't have the video for my speech yet. A lot of you have been asking about that, but I'll make sure to get it and I'll post it whenever I can. I don't know who the people were that actually videoed it, but I gave what I thought was a very mild presentation I was trying to be somewhat nonpartisan, some, somewhat, somewhat. The teacher told me to be as partisan as I want to be. So I kind of sprinkled some things in there that I knew would get a rise out of people, but nothing absolutely crazy. I talked about where we are going into the midterms, where Republicans are, where Democrats are. And I spoke the truth about polls. I mean, almost every single one of my slides was a graph. Uh, from a nonpartisan poll or a nonpartisan study. This is not me just... Uh, coming up with random conjecture and uh, communicating my bias about how awesome the Republican Party is and how bad the Democratic Party is. I just talked about, okay, here's where we are with voter enthusiasm. Here's what Democrats care about. Here's what Republicans care about. And Democrats better watch out because Republicans are closing the gap. And here's why. I talked about the Kavanaugh thing. I talked about how the left has really fallen into identity politics, has really devolved into tribalism. 
and how people are rejecting that. I talked about the fact this is a poll by NBC, by the way, so not some conservative bastion, the poll that shows voter enthusiasm between Republican women and Democratic women, how Democratic women were uh we're trumping Republican women in voter enthusiasm in July. And uh, in October, Republican women were beating Democratic women. And the reason for that, I think, is because of the whole Kavanaugh thing, because our empathy for Kavanaugh and his family was underestimated and underrepresented in the mainstream media. And yet it was there. I mean, you guys knew how I felt about that whole thing, how passionate I was about it. And it really didn't have to do with uh, Republicanism for us. It had to do with principles. It had to do with uh, due process. It had to do with truth. It had to do with justice. All of these things were great motivators for us to say, hey, the midterms actually matter. I don't know. Some of you said probably, I don't know if I like the Republican Party, but I know I don't want to be a part of the Democrats because you saw the crazy people that were storming the Supreme Court steps. You saw the crazy people that were in the Senate chamber during the hearings. You saw the absolute unhinged nature of the feminists on the left. And you said, all I know is I don't want to be a part of that. That is why female voter enthusiasm is up. So I basically said all of that and I showed my work. I gave them facts. I gave them percentages. I gave them polls and studies and all of this stuff to say, hey, Democrats probably need to get their act together because all of this uh, hyperbole when it comes to Donald Trump and conservatism, putting women back in the kitchen and taking us back to coat hanger abortions and basically the poor are going to get poorer and the rich are going to get richer and all of this horrible stuff, all of this unequal and equitable stuff that's going to happen in America because of Trump, because of Republicans, because of Brett Kavanaugh, y'all might want to cool it on that because it doesn't seem to be working that well. This uh, blue wave that you guys have talked about is going to be much less of a tsunami and much more of a little ripple. Because even though you have one of the least popular presidents in modern history, you still don't seem to be capable of winning. Why is that? So I talked about all this. I talked about the dangers of identity politics. I talked about where I think Democrats are going wrong. And I didn't think that this was going to be that controversial. Actually, I thought I was being kind of nice, giving some advice to Democrats, something that I'm not really in the business of doing, quite frankly, because I like watching them devolve into craziness. But it was met with literal gasps from the audience. Like the whole time, I don't think that I talked for more than 60 seconds without getting gasps from the audience. Some people were yelling in the, I have no idea what they were yelling, but yelling. Um, I got a few laughs on things that I didn't think were funny. At one point, I talked about how abortion is killing a child. I think it was in response to a question that I got. Everyone bust out laughing at that. They thought that that was hilarious. One girl thought that she really trapped me in asking me if I did not believe Dr. Ford. I said, no, I I don't think that she was assaulted by Kavanaugh. It gasps, gasps. And she said, why? It was like... They had never heard that. It was like they had never heard it. And then we had one guy bringing up the yearbook. He thought that that was a a, a legitimate argument as if he was there uh, in the 1980s when Brett Kavanaugh was in high school and he knows what who Renate is or he knows what the devil's triangle is. They thought that these were legitimate arguments. I think that I might have been the first conservative that a lot of these people met in person 
and that a lot of these people had ever heard. The things that they thought were extreme, I'm like, I haven't even started talking about a wall yet, you guys. The things that they thought were extreme really amazed me. And it also discouraged me because like I said, you log on to Twitter and you think that the people you see on Twitter that are on the left are caricatures of reality and they're really not. The The people that I heard ask questions in Nashville and uh, the people that I spoke to in California are, uh, they sound like they have never heard a conservative argument. They have never heard someone talk who doesn't actually agree with them. They just take as absolute fact things like white privilege, things like um, deep-seated systemic racism that they say still exists in this country, uh, the gender wage gap, the income gap, and the education gap they say actually points to systemic discrimination and racism. It's crazy how they've just accepted these things as real without asking, is there any proof of this whatsoever? Because there's really not. And it's no wonder if you look at the numbers um, uh, on on polls about patriotism, which which party is actually more patriotic than the other by asking, do you think America is the greatest country in the world or are you extremely proud to be American? It's really no wonder that Republicans are so far above Democrats. They do not think that this is a good country. They think that this is a terrible, unequal, unfair country um, and that we should be, if we're going to be a good, just country, that we need to be guaranteeing equality of outcomes, um, which is absolutely ridiculous. You can't control equality of outcomes without forcing some people into mediocrity, which is also called tyranny. But that is something that the left doesn't get. They've completely abandoned reality. And I'm telling you, I've told you this before, if you listen to my podcast, this extremism from the left is fairly new. Um, there was a, there was one point, I probably around 2003, most recently, when the majority of Americans had a mixture of liberal and conservative views. This is from Pew Research. That is not true anymore. By 2011, we had spread far apart, but between 2011 and 2017, it, we spread so far apart that there's almost no one in the middle. There are people way over here on conservatism and even more people way over here on leftism. And that's part of why we can't get along. And I've already talked to my podcast about the fundamental differences that we really have between the right and the left, but I won't get into all of that right now. So that was my adventure over the past week. It was fun. I was really tired. I was so glad that my husband got to join me for the last part of it. It was his birthday. He turned a whopping 28 years old and we got to spend that in San Francisco. Besides the craziness that San Francisco is, I love San Francisco. I think it's a beautiful city. People always talk about like the uh, the poop that you see on the sidewalks and like the needles that you see on the sidewalks. I didn't actually see that. That's not to say it wasn't there. I didn't walk around in the Tenderloin, which is the not great part of San Francisco. But the part that we were in was beautiful. The weather was beautiful. I just wish California wasn't so ideologically backwards in so many ways because it is a beautiful state. I know unpopular opinion to say on a conservative podcast, but I actually love the city of San Francisco. Uh, then we got home. My in-laws came in town and we just hung out with them. It was beautiful fall weather in Texas. We're actually having a season change um, for like the first time in a long time. I feel like we didn't have a fall at all last year, but we're having a fall and it's great. Now, the leaves probably won't change because that doesn't really happen um, in Texas, but we're enjoying some crisp weather that never, ever happens. Um... Okay. I think that's it. I think that's all I have to say about my travels and about this past week. 
now I'm here for a little bit. I'm not traveling quite as much. I travel a lot in the fall for speaking engagements to college campuses. If you would like me to come speak at your college campus, you of course can reach out to me. My schedule is just about full for the fall, but next semester or next year, I am open. So make sure to email me if you would like. Okay. Now let's talk about the midterms just a little bit, which like I said, is happening in a couple of weeks. If you are not planning to vote, what are you doing? I would be very surprised because I think most people that listen to my podcast are probably very politically active. If you have not donated to the campaigns that you are supporting, I encourage you to do so. If you can block walk for them, if you can go to the polls and volunteer, make sure that you are getting as involved as you can in your local election. Um, I don't always require straight ticket voting. Of course, I'm going to be voting. I'm going to be voting Republican. I, I don't necessarily say you should vote Republican in every single race for every single regard. I do encourage you to research your candidates and vote for the more liberty minded candidate, maybe in some kind of weird district. That's the Democrat. I don't really know. That's probably not true anymore, but maybe it is. So I won't tell you to just vote Republican no matter what, but really research the issues. Don't just read, you know, MSNBC or even Fox News. Make sure that you know their voting record if they're an incumbent or if they've served elsewhere. Make sure you know what their values are, know what they stand for. We've got some really tight races. One kind of tight race is between Beto O'Rourke and Ted Cruz here in Texas. But the polls are looking good for Ted Cruz for a while there. Beto O'Rourke was closing the gap. He has become a media darling, despite the fact that when he was 26 years old, which is old, by the way, I'm 26 now, he had a DUI and, and fled the scene. That's kind of a big deal in politics. If that was a Republican, he would have been absolutely dragged through the mud. He probably would have been done. Nevertheless, he went on Ellen. He's been on Jen Hatmaker's podcast. Uh, he's been making the media rounds, all the popular leftist outlets. And yet he is trailing behind Ted Cruz. But as we know, anything could happen. He could he, he could still he could still win. Probably not, but he could. But if Republicans are apathetic, it's definitely a possibility. So if you are living in Texas, make sure that not only you are voting, make sure that your friends are voting, make sure that you send your friend links, have conversations with them about it. You don't have to be con confrontational. You don't have to be uh, antagonizing or aggravating. Just have a conversation with them about it. Ask them if they're voting. Uh, make them feel like that's the most important thing to you, that they are involved, that they exercise the important right and drive them to the polls if you need to. Make sure that those around you have transportation. Do everything you can to make sure that your friends are voting. Of course, you want them to vote in the right way. And to do that, have conversations with them. It's definitely not too early to start right now. It's probably a really good time because a month ago, a lot of people weren't thinking about it. But And if you know people that are voting Democrat, if you're a young person, you probably do. Just have a conversation with them about it. You don't have to be, like I said, confrontational. You don't have to make them feel like you're judging them or anything like that. Just have a conversation about it. Start asking them why they're voting Democrat, uh, why they like this particular candidate that they're voting for, particularly if it's Beto. Start um, asking really what their values are, particularly if you have Christians that are voting Democrat. Ask them what they think about being pro-choice or about being pro-abortion. Ask them what they think is Christian about welfare. Maybe don't say it like that because that sounds kind of rhetorical and sarcastic, but have sincere, honest conversations. And I think the best way to talk to people that you don't agree with is to ask them questions and to get them to start thinking about why they believe what they believe. You don't even have to have a proper retort. If you don't know um, a good argument against their reason for voting Democrat, you don't have to give it. 
That's fine. Just ask them, why are you voting this way? Why, why do you have these values? Say, huh, as a Christian, I kind of see it like this. Or, huh, I didn't think about it like that, but here's how I see it. I think it's good. And that might not change their vote come midterms, but at least they A, know that Republicans are willing to hear them out, that we're not these terrible people that don't want to hear other people's views and are not open-minded. And B, maybe it starts, it gets them to start thinking about why they believe what they believe and to try to start defending their arguments better. And maybe in the process of trying to defend their arguments better, they uh, awaken to the beauty of logic and conservatism. You just never know. So start having those conversations, especially with your apolitical friends. Get them involved. Get them excited. Let them know what is at stake. A lot is at stake in this election. Also, let people know that are on the fence that voting Republican does not mean that you love Donald Trump. That's what we're kind of having a hard time with right now. There are a lot of... um, Republicans and soft Republicans and particularly suburban women who don't like Donald Trump. I get it. He's not, in my opinion, the most likable guy in the world. So if you don't like him, I totally understand what these women and what these people who are on the fence need to know is that voting in your local election for Republicans or voting for a Republican senator does not mean that you love Donald Trump. It's not even necessarily a direct help to Donald Trump. It does not unite you to Donald Trump. You are voting for principles. You are voting for values. You are voting for the perpetuation of individual liberty uh, for the Constitution, for the Second Amendment, for the First Amendment, for all of these things that conservatives stand for. And if those are things that you stand for, that you want to protect for your kids and for your posterity, then you probably need to vote Republican or, like I said, for the more liberty-minded candidate. This is not about liking Donald Trump. The left wants to make everything about Donald Trump because they think it helps their case. He has a low approval rating. So if they make the election about Donald Trump, they know fewer people will vote Republican. You need to tell your apolitical friends or your friends who are on the fence, particularly suburban women who are thinking they don't want to vote for Donald Trump anymore, that voting for Republican is not voting for Donald Trump, that this has very little to do with Donald Trump. And Donald Trump is going to be gone in six years at the most. And this is about voting for your principles. Don't switch over to the Democratic Party just because you don't like the president. He is extremely temporary. Um, So those are the conversations that you need to be having with people. I know they can be awkward. I know they can be uncomfortable. And I'm not asking you to risk your relationships in order to talk politics. If someone doesn't want to talk politics, that's fine. I don't want you to force that on them. Relationships are more important than politics. But if you can, try to prod, Um, try to get your friends excited. If you're really close to someone, um, guilt them into voting. Like I will be doing that with my friends. At this point, all of my friends know to vote. But if they weren't, then I would definitely be guilting them into voting. So one of the close elections, like I said, Ted Cruz versus Beto O'Rourke. We've also got McSally versus Cinema. That's a Senate seat in Arizona. Cinema is crazy. She's a crazy woman. Like it's come out how just radical and how far left and extreme she is. McSally is awesome. She's a Republican woman. She is someone that absolutely should be supported. Of course, in no situation is a candidate perfect, but McSally is a good option, especially next to this crazy lady who was actually recently caught saying that, um, that how did she phrase it? Oh, she said that stay-at-home moms are nothing more than leeches. So that's what she thinks of women. She also has a lot of disrespect for the state of Arizona 
So she's just not someone that you want to put in office. We've got a close governor race, Stacey Abrams and Brian Kemp in Georgia. I used to live in Georgia. My husband's family all lives in Georgia. We are all biting our nails at this whole thing. Stacey Abrams is an absolute moon bat. She's just crazy. Like she spoke to a group in Statesboro, Georgia. Statesboro, Georgia is extremely agricultural. She told the people there when she was delivering a speech that they could do better than agriculture and hospitality. That tells me right there that she doesn't know anything about the state whatsoever. Agriculture and hospitality are big in Georgia and they're great industries. You can make a lot of money in both of those industries and they're respectable, dignified industries. Stacey Abrams has no idea what she is doing. She is so far left, and yet in the liberal counties, particularly in Atlanta and Clark County, where Athens, Georgia is, and in Columbus, there are plenty of kind of liberal pockets in Georgia. They are going towards her. Now, Brian Kemp, I think, is a good candidate. He's done some polarizing things, like he ran an ad uh, that depicted him like rounding up illegal immigrants. I wasn't the, really the biggest fan of that. I'm like, why do something that's going to push the soft Republicans away? Ugh, I don't know. But he's obviously going to be a better candidate. He knows Georgia better. He knows the Georgian people better. He has uh, he has a good record of leadership. He's already been secretary of state for Georgia. Stacey Abrams really has no legitimate experience whatsoever. We've also got the governor race down in Florida between Andrew Gillum and Ron DeSantis. We know that Andrew Gillum has already been endorsed by Democratic Socialists of America, so there's really nothing else to say about him. Let's see. I'm just trying to think of these off the top of my head. There are plenty of other close and important races out there. Uh, So stay in the know on that. I'm always checking 538 blog. I just think it gives a pretty good indication of what the election is going to be like right now. They have the typical Republicans are keeping the Senate, but Republicans are losing the House. That's probably going to be true. The chances are pretty good that that's going to be true. But again, you never know. We've got a narrow majority in the Senate right now. Uh, There's a possibility that we keep our majority in the House, but it's pretty unlikely. So just make sure that you are involved. Make sure that you're doing whatever you can to raise awareness, as long as you're not absolutely risking all of your closest relationships. Okay, I have a question to answer that someone asked me. So last week I talked about abortion and how one of the, I think really the only logical argument or not argument for abortion, there is no logical argument for abortion, but the only logical case or the only case where abortion could be illogically defended would be if the woman who is pregnant was going to lose her physical life, like actually going to lose her life. Not just there's a chance that she's going to lose her life, but she is going to die. Now I recognize that the chances of that are so close to so close to zero. That just doesn't really happen in America. Thank God. Medicine and technology is so advanced that that really doesn't happen. And there are women who are told to abort their children. Like there was a professor at my college, Furman, I think I talked about this last week. Uh, she had breast cancer. She was told to abort her child. She didn't. Her child is strong and awesome. And obviously, that is always the better alternative. So I would never, no matter what, encourage a woman to have an abortion, no matter what. But I am talking philosophically. Philosophically, if the argument is that all life is dignified, that all life is worth something, that murder of an innocent person should never be justified, then the life, the the worthiness of the life of the mother is equal to the worthiness of the life of the child. That's the only logical way that I can say, okay, 
if it's a choice, you have to choose one or the other and neither is technically philosophically immoral. Now, someone emailed me and said, when someone becomes a mother, they then have the responsibility to take care of their child, the child in the womb or the child outside of the womb, even if that means laying down their life. And I absolutely agree with you. I totally agree with you. Um, I pray to God that I'm never in that situation, but that would, that would be my choice. I would do anything to protect my child. I agree with you that that is our God-given responsibility, but I'm talking philosophically and legally. It's somewhat of a difficult case to make against it if you feel that the mother's life is equally as worthy as the child's life. Um, I hope that that makes sense. I'm open to evolving on that. I hope that that doesn't make it sound like I, in any case, condone abortion. I am so far from that. I believe that life starts at conception, that there is never any excuse to terminate a child's life in the womb or outside of the womb, of course. But I understand the philosophical position of saying, if you actually were forced to choose between a mother and a child, it is no more immoral to choose the mother over the child. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. I hope that that's not miscommunicated or misconstrued in any way. I am absolutely as pro-life as they come in every situation. But I'm talking from a logical philosophical position. Okay. Uh, One more thing. One more question. Someone asked me how I deal with haters. Sometimes it really does hurt my feelings. Other times it doesn't most of the time, like when I get stupid trolls on social media, I don't really care. I get those every day. You always get the troll that thinks, oh, they're going to take you down and really hurt your feelings and make you feel like this isn't a legitimate career. And I'm like, there were 15,000 of you before you came along. I don't know your name. I won't remember your name tomorrow. It just kind of, you get desensitized to it. Is that how you say that? I'm not sure if I said that the right way. You no longer care about it anymore because it just happens so much that it just doesn't bother you. Now, there's some criticism that that hurts more than others, especially if they're from friends or people that you know. Now, that doesn't really happen to me, but I've told you guys in the past about someone who was my college roommate, who was also in my wedding, who decided to express her hatred of my views and really dislike of me on social media. That was really just bizarre. That, of course, hurts your feelings because that person knows you and they've completely let politics drive a wedge in your relationship and also shroud their opinion of you. So that really sucks. And that's not to say that criticism never bothers me because sometimes it certainly does. But my value doesn't come from what people say about me on the internet. It comes from something much higher than that. It obviously comes from my faith in Christ, but also my family. Like I have a lot of confidence that comes from encouragement from my friends and my family and the people that really know me. That's really how I stay grounded. Just live a normal life with normal friends, normal family, and they just keep me down to earth for when it's either praise on the internet or hate on the internet. Okay, now I'm gonna highlight a nonprofit Someone sent me information about a passion center for children that is an organization here in the United States that provides food, clothing, other resources for child-headed households in Malawi, in Africa. So this area that they help is actually uh, the number one place in the world for child-headed households. 
So one of their parents probably died from HIV AIDS. So now a minor is actually taking care of their entire family. These families are in need, in desperate need of help more than any other type of family. Obviously, they live in an extremely impoverished part of the world, and now they don't even have an adult to take care of them. So these kids are learning trades. They're getting provided for um, clothing-wise, food-wise, and they're able to just subsist and to live a life and to not have to worry all the time about what their where their next meal is coming from. So this is Passion Center for Children. You can go to passioncenterforchildren.org and you can donate to them. You can see some of the pictures of the kids that they've been able to help. It's really amazing. What an amazing what an amazing cause too. I mean, God tells us to care for the widows and the orphans. This is such a good way to do this. And you see the pictures of where some of these kids live and you just realize how much we take for granted on a daily basis. They live in basically a mud hut and we know more luxury than any other group of people in human history. So the least we can do is help a group like this, help kids like this who really have nothing and show them the love of Christ, the same grace that God in Christ has shown us. So that's my podcast for today. I will see you guys on Thursday. If you have any suggestions or questions, you know where to find me. 